0: Hello, and thanks for tuning us in on the Maine Question podcast from the University of Maine. I'm your host, Ron Lusnet. There's a good reason that dramatic TV shows set in hospitals or medical centers make for such compelling entertainment. Shows like ER, House, Grey's Anatomy have received praise and great ratings during their time. The stories they tell are inherently dramatic. The stakes are high, and you see the best and the worst in people. While reality is different than Hollywood, there are real life and death situations or healthcare decisions that families have to deal with every day. And that has certainly been taken to a new level with the coronavirus pandemic. How are decisions about care and treatment options made when a life is on the line and people have different opinions? How are scarce resources like personal protective equipment and hospital bed space fairly distributed during a pandemic? Outside of the hospital setting, what's the best way to balance public health with reopening the economy? You might not think a philosopher would be involved in decisions like this, but in fact they are instrumental in helping to resolve complex situations such as these. Bio or clinical ethicists are now part of the team in hospitals and clinics across the country. It's just one example of the way philosophy is involved in many aspects of our lives without us even being aware of it. Ask the person on the street and they probably think philosophy majors sit around reading Plato or Socrates and that this discipline really doesn't have a real-world application in society today. Well, Jessica Miller is here to dispel that myth. A professor of philosophy and associate dean in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences at UMaine, she has many examples to share on how philosophy may be more important now than ever, and how students who major in the subject go on to have successful careers in a wide range of fields, from law to the entertainment world. She also talks about her work as a bioethicist, helping patients and their families work with medical teams to make difficult decisions. After hearing Jessica, you probably won't ever think of philosophy in the same way again. She helps us navigate the main question for this episode. How can philosophy help deliver the best medical care? Well, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you taking the time. You're welcome.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: Let's start here, maybe. The perception of philosophy versus the reality of what it's like for you, who is steeped in this discipline, When people find out you're a professor of philosophy, I'll bet they have some pretty interesting takes as to what it is you actually do or what that's all about. Could you maybe share some of those or what stereotypical views there are of your discipline?
1: There definitely are some inaccurate old school ways of thinking about philosophy. For example, that philosophers are unemployable, um, have no marketable skills, that they're useless in our current economy with exploding tech and innovations and things like that. And they also sometimes think that we're out of touch, that we're in an ivory tower and we don't know anything about the world because we're studying dusty old books. Um, And all of these are inaccurate. Uh, They never were really accurate. So when we talk about, for example, um, the value of a philosophy degree, I think what people don't realize is that the jobs that are most in demand today could actually become jobs that are done by artificial intelligence or robots, right? But there's an aspect of what you're learning when you take a philosophy degree that is unique to the human mind and can never be replaced. The things like thinking logically, critically, and independently Uh, we focus on. We value the ability to scrutinize an argument rather than just accepting it. We value strong communication skills, writing and orally. And we help our students develop particular skills in reasoning, but with general and abstract concepts. So our students can think big, but then they can apply the abstract concepts and principles to specific cases. And those are skills that are transferable to a wide range of careers. So that's one thing that I, you know, think is important for everyone to know. As far as something like a salary question, you know, I find it interesting because people aren't doing their research. The um, philosophy majors end up doing very well, maybe not initially out of the gate, but compared to, say, their STEM colleagues, particularly in engineering and computer science. But they actually do quite well by the time they hit five years or so out. Sometimes that's because they are so well-suited for getting an advanced degree. Philosophy Philosophy undergrads tend to do very well on law school boards and graduate school entrance exams and things like that. But it's it's also because... There isn't a direct line from a philosophy degree to a particular career, the way there might be for something like nursing or elementary education. But when people talk about a low salary, you know, I really have to ask, we do have a lot of careers in the U.S. that are less well-paid relative to other careers, and elementary ed would be one. And I don't think anyone would say that it's not valuable that we have teachers of our children, Um, that are well-educated and love their job. So for me, like that you may not make quite as much money as someone in another career, sure, it's a factor. But the question for, for us is, can you make a living? Can you make a valuable contribution to the world? Are you going to be happy in what you're doing? And on all of those counts, philosophy students do very well.
0: So it's not just Socrates and Plato anymore, right? That's what some people probably think.
1: Socrates and Plato are really important, but no, and it never was. So, and I think what you what you see even in the um, contemporary self help world, um, you know, people get the big bucks to go to talk to Fortune five hundred companies about, for example, the Stoics and and how Stoic philosophy can help help us weather you know our turbulent society and changes and our moods even internally. Philosophers, of course, we, the content of what we study is very important. Yes, Plato and Socrates, um, also Simone de Beauvoir, um, also Hegel and Kant and Locke, Hannah Arendt, but we, the content is so important because it it is the bedrock, theoretically, of our history. Uh, It's our intellectual. Tradition, or at least an important intellectual tradition. So I think that's really important for students to be exposed to and to have um, knowledge of. But what we're doing in our philosophy classes is yes, studying philosophers for the sake of what they said and what they bring to the world. um, But we're also looking at how we apply it. And we're also asking ourselves, how can these things these ideas, these concepts, these arguments—how do they play out in today's world, in my own life, in my relationships? So, yeah, we have, um, we we work both historically and in a contemporary manner.
0: And I know you do a lot of work as a bioethicist, and I'm I'm looking forward to asking you some questions about that. But before we leave this uh, particular topic we've been talking about, what are some of the jobs that uh, some of you are? grads from your program have gotten that people might not think, well, uh, a philosophy degree led to this career or this job? Or are there some uh, varied places that UMaine grads have ended up?
1: Yes. Um, One of our grads, Lance Walker, is now a United States District judge. And he was a philosophy grad, um, a Mainer, great Mainer, and done wonderful service in his legal career. Um, In tech, you find a lot of people who have done philosophy degrees, Um, for example, uh, Patrick Byrne, the founder of Overstock, Uh, Larry Sanger, the co-founder of Wikipedia, Peter Thiel, a venture capitalist and co-founder of PayPal. You see creatives, Wes Anderson, Stephen Colbert the actor Rashida Jones, NBA coach Phil Jackson, um, the novelist Mary Higgins Clark. So there's loads of people, and it's not just that they took a degree in philosophy, they will say in interviews over and over how important that degree was for them. When we look at our own students, we see them doing so many interesting things. Yes, some of them do follow Judge Walker, and you know they go into a law career. We know that um, philosophy students get some of the best scores on the MCATs, the medical school entrance exams. Um, they do. They go into medical school. They go into graduate school in social work or journalism. But then we have other students who enter nonprofits or they do uh, political work, political organizing and, and activism. They do all kinds of interesting work abroad, different kinds of NGOs and and building community abroad. Um, Sometimes they go into communications, marketing, journalism, so there's just a huge array.
0: So what is a bioethicist and how do they and you interact with people in healthcare or medicine?
1: Bioethics as a field of study is looking at the ethical implications of the health and life sciences and as a field of study it has three main branches and it's an interdisciplinary field so philosophers are a huge part of bioethics but so are anthropologists sociologists medical doctors nurses attorneys theologians and that's something that i really enjoy about it um, is that it's interdisciplinary so the three areas that that we study in the field of bioethics include clinical ethics which is a focus on what happens in the healthcare setting and research ethics Um, and then we also look at the bigger issues of justice and allocation of healthcare resources and some larger societal issues so we study kind of the gamut just as you know you would think health covers the gamut
0: give us maybe an example from from each of those if there is a a patient in the hospital and the family and the medical professionals are trying to make a decision about what kind of care or whether to continue care? I mean, is that sort of one of the scenarios that, that you've uh, had to uh, deal with?
1: When people do um, bioethics in the clinical setting, that's exactly what you know we're doing. We are trying to um, mediate disputes or disagreements, and they could be between members of the healthcare team, they could be between family members, they could be between family and the healthcare team, and we're, we're really focused on the ethical and values questions. So we we aren't going to come in and recommend this surgery or that intervention, but what we will help people do, and this is where I really bring my philosophical skills in, is that, you know, you can sit down with a A group of people, which we do, and it includes all of the care team, family members, maybe the patient if they're well enough, and everyone's kind of talking past each other and they're not using the same terms in the same way and there isn't clarity about what the options are on the table and because of my philosophical training I can sort of help that group come to an agreement on the terms of the discussion, on the options for the patient, and on the values that should be guiding the care of the patient. So what are the patient's values? What does the care team think is the best option based on their professional values? How can we? How do we prioritize them? Where does the law fit in here? Where does the standard of care fit in? So we bring all of those things together with a focus on ethics and values to try to move the situation forward in a productive way for the patient.
0: It's often the case, isn't it, that everybody has the patient's best interests at heart. They just disagree on the path to get there and they just need to come up with a compromise.
1: That's a great way to put it. I think when people hear I'm an ethicist, they sometimes say, oh, it's the ethics police or, oh, we can't make a joke about such and such, you know, because we have to be serious. The ethicist is here. And I think that's not at all how we who study ethics see ourselves. Basically, when an ethics consult happens or people request an ethicist, they are good people trying to do the right thing that just disagree about how to achieve that. And what we bring to the table are those analytical and argumentative and clarifying skills, our our abilities in oral and written communication, and then some other skills that we sort of have to develop along the way that have to do with, you know, group work and mediation and things like that. And our knowledge of the body of clinical ethics concepts and ideas and kind of try to help people come to enough of an agreement that they can continue to work together in the best interest of the patient or whomever is the subject of the consult.
0: Now you do this work for Northern Light Healthcare here in Maine and and other providers in the state and on the state level as well, correct?
1: Yeah, so I've had ethics consults from all different folks. I do consult with Northern Light Health the most, but also I've had calls Uh, For example, before marijuana was legalized, I had a question from a physician about prescribing medical marijuana. There was an ethics issue that was raised about would would his website, is it giving the wrong impression, for example, like ethically, where is the limit between being a businessman and being a doctor? I've had calls from sort of legal aid groups about when they have clients, you know, that are potentially being not heard in a certain way, maybe in a group care setting, you know, well, what are the um, ethical options here? I've had a call from a a pharmacist at a major retailer who thought maybe a mistaken vaccine went out. And even though it, it didn't happen, should they disclose to the folks um, that were their clients. So, and then in, in a hospital setting, um, the questions like the ones you've raised, end of life questions, how would this patient want to live the remainder of their life? Questions about capacity. Can the patient make their own decisions? Or are they? do we really need to be looking for someone else to do that? What if we can't find anyone? In Maine, this is an increasing issue as it is in the country, which is, unrepresented patients, particularly older adults, who have chosen to age in place, but for one reason or another, don't have family who are available to help make medical decisions for them. We have another issue with discharging patients where we are underserved in the state of Maine in certain ways. So a patient may need a level of care that isn't available uh, close by. So then there's difficult choice of having to go out of state um, versus staying home close to their family, but maybe not having as robust medical care as they, as they might like. So there's lots of questions that come up.
0: Has the coronavirus pandemic taken these issues to a new level? Talk about how ethics might play into things like the psychology of wearing masks or uh, rationing of health care and personal protective equipment or who gets the hospital bed and who doesn't. Your work probably is factored into all of those issues, I imagine.
1: For anyone working in bioethics, this period since March has been a very, very busy period at at the local, state, and national level. For example, at the national level in, in March, I think a lot of us were in dialogue, kind of talking about what do we do if there's such a surge such that we don't have the acute care, particularly intensive care resources. And I think ventilators and beds were the things that made it into the public awareness, but there were PPE issues and lots of other things. How do we ration or, you know, how do we distribute those things in the fairest possible way? Um, This was something that we all were relying on each other to talk through just in case it came to pass. It did not come to pass in the state of Maine, but I can tell you that um, the the bioethicists in the state, we were all in dialogue with each other, with leadership of health systems, um, with the governor's office. We, were you know, we all were trying to be really prepared to make sure that the fairest possible systems could be set up uh, for patients. Other issues have definitely been coming up, like, you know, how does this affect clinical ethics? Maybe you have a patient who needs dialysis and they're sort of losing their ability to understand their current situation and they're reluctant to go get dialysis. And they really need their friend to go with them, to sit with them and help them remember why they're there and remember it's important, but now we have COVID. So what do we do for a patient that really needs a friend with them, but they can't go into the clinic? Or um, at the end of life, how do we know we've always been able to have family there when someone is imminently dying. But how do you know when that line is crossed? Um, Because we don't want visitors in with patients in an intensive care setting where infection control is, is very important. So balancing the needs of the family and you know, the staff and the community to to stop the spread of COVID. All of these issues have been raised to the nth degree, I should say.
0: So one big point of contention these days, of course, is the balance between protecting public health and keeping the economy afloat, reopening the economy, as some people have put it. How does a philosopher look at that?
1: The way that a philosopher looks at these bigger questions about the rights of individuals versus the need for a community to protect the vulnerable, we would begin by asking questions like, what do we know? What are the facts? And how do we know it? So I've talked a lot about values and ethics, but another thing that philosophers do is called epistemology, which is a fancy word for saying, how do we know we have a warrant for the things we believe? Why do we think they're true? And in, in today's world, I, I think that is one of the most important things that the discipline of philosophy can bring to the world. It is so difficult for people these days with social media and misinformation to know what to believe. Um, so I think that's one intervention right away in the COVID pandemic that we can look at the question when we talk about the trade-off of an individual you know, mask mandate against the economy or a mandate to, you know, shelter in place against, you know, economic losses, we need to ask, is it really a dichotomy like that? And I think what a lot of people would say is um, it's sort of like asking, is it better to build a solid foundation or build a strong house? You kind of need both. And I think public health is, is a part of that foundation for the economy, so if we have a lot of sick workers, a lot of nervous workers, not to mention dead workers, you know, that is going to have an impact on the economy as well. So what philosophers will will not do is get into the weeds. This is for economists and others about exactly how many jobs will be lost, but we'll ask the kinds of questions about what values are you promoting um, when you ask this kind of question? And what are your assumptions about asking this kind of question? So For example, some of us my age remember when a little baby named Jessica fell down a well and we had 58 hours on TV of watching dozens of rescuers spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to get baby Jessica out of the well. Nobody said, you know, was this a waste of resources? I think everybody wanted baby Jessica to be okay and she was okay. But then imagine that you get an email saying, come to this town meeting to talk about putting fences up around wells. And you'd probably be bored and you might delete it, (laughs) right? Um, And yet it's the same issue, but you're just taking it from one very poignant story about an individual to a more like boring public policy question, right? So I think what philosophers will try to do is, is ask us, are there biases in our thinking? And the bias that I'm referring to is a bias about um, rescuing one person versus putting plans in place to minimize harm to a large group of people. And I think that's where with the pandemic, it's hard. When you say 210,000 Americans are dead, that is a numbing number. That is, I mean, psychologists have done studies where they'll take People and ask, would you save one baby? And then they'll say, what if it was three? And the likelihood goes down <laughs> that somebody will be willing to save them. I mean, you're talking tiny numbers, right? Um, so imagine 200 to 10,000. So there's like a numbing effect. So I think philosophers appreciate these sorts of things and try to put us in the mindset of emphasizing the relationship. Between the 210,000 and the individuals like Baby Jessica in the well, and say let's be consistent in our thinking here.
0: So many people are looking for a yes or no answer, or black or black and white, when there's so many shades of gray. When you look at the COVID-19 situation and the anxiety of losing your job or your home, and suicide and depression and all the things, that's part of maybe what you are able to uh, let people know is that there is no easy black or white yes or no 100% or 0% situation in most of these cases.
1: Right. You know, when you, we look at I mentioned the stoics earlier in the in our conversation, but you know, there's a metaphor of a sort of rolling down the hill and, you know, gravity will pull anything from the top of the hill to the bottom, but what shape the object is in. Um, really affects how how hard it bounces and how how rough that ride is. It's very difficult, and and again, psychologists will tell you how much the human mind does not like this level of complexity and uncertainty because it's not just complex; it's changing every day. Um, so, not just the numbers going up, but they go down and they go up, and they you know the rates change and our information changes, and um, so it's really hard. And I think what What we can bring to the table is um, there are no easy answers, and that's okay, but we still have to act. We still have to live our lives. So, you know, what are some tools or some ideas that we can use to do that? What are our responsibilities epistemically? That is, our responsibilities in terms of verifying the information that's coming in. Um, But also our responsibility in turning off the spigot when it becomes overwhelming and too much for our own mental health. So yeah, I do think philosophers are good at tolerating ambiguity and complexity.
0: So that's maybe one of the lessons we learned from this pandemic. What, what else do you think might we take forward from this situation and make things better? Anything?
1: Well, I do think that the coronavirus pandemic has revealed the way that our daily interactions are interwoven with those of our fellow There is a web that connects us all. It's not a web of, it's not a physical web, it's not even like a digital web, but it's a moral web, a normative web. It's a web of our duties and obligations to one another. And I think what the pandemic has done is really highlight that. You know, why are we wearing a mask? Well, in large part, to protect other people. Why are we isolating if we've had a positive test to protect other people. I think what I hope we can take away from this is maintaining that level of awareness of the way that our behavior impacts other people and their, their behavior impacts us so that we can maybe be more mindful about the daily decisions that we make um, that affect, and not just other people, but maybe the environment as well you know, the natural world. So I think this web of relationships, which is very difficult right now. And, and you know, politically, I think things are very polarized. That's the term that I know our, our political science friends use, um, makes things a little bit difficult. But if if nothing else, I feel like we may be able to show a little bit more resilience, a little bit more compassion, and a little bit more empathy Um, to one another.
0: I imagine this era of the pandemic is going to lead to a lot of case studies and examples and things you're going to bring into your classes and other philosophy faculty members will as well. So how do you take this into your classes that you're teaching? and, And what do you hope the students ultimately from this situation or just big picture walk away with?
1: Well, I think for those of us that are teaching in bioethics and in philosophy, there are so, so many issues from the very question, just take vaccines, right? From, from the question of beginning with how do we, who should pay for the development of a vaccine? The question of what humans should we begin by testing the vaccine on? Um, when the vaccine is developed, should it cost something and what should it cost? Who, who should get the vaccine first? What do we do about misinformation around the vaccine and, and anti-vaccination sentiment and reluctance? Um, so I think just looking at the, the travel of a vaccine from the very beginning of its development to its distribution, there are a host of ethical issues. And I know that my colleagues in philosophy at the University of Maine are bringing those up for sure as, as are our colleagues in other departments. Um, I happen to be teaching a one credit course called Character, Career and Happiness uh, right now. And in that class, my students are asking this question about what is the good life for me? What is a good life? What is the good life for me? And they're kind of connecting that to their own educational and career goals. Every time I meet with them, we are wearing masks. We are faced literally with the pandemic as we look at each other with wearing masks. And so the question of what is the good life for me is really very heightened right now. And I think I'm seeing my students really think hard about what kind of lives they want to lead, not just how much money they want to make, but what kind of a contribution they want to make to the world. So I think even in classes like that, we can bring in these difficult and and honestly, in many cases, very tragic questions that the pandemic is raising for us.
0: So final thoughts, is this gonna make us better? Are we gonna learn from this and, and evolve from this? What do you see as the, the future once we get through all this? It's not like uh, you know all our health problems are gonna go away once we have a vaccine. I mean, there's gonna be something else, I'm sure, but so uh, what do you hope for? What do you, what do you think you'll see?
1: I definitely think that a lot of the problems that the pandemic is, raising have been with us for many, many years. Um, access to health care, discrimination against um, the intellectually disabled, race and fairness and justice. And all of those have been with us and they will probably to some extent continue to be with us. I hope that the pandemic will bring attention or awareness to our knowledge of the suffering of others. Um, we'll have more information about that, and and that might lead to feeling more emotionally moved by that suffering, and being able to then be intentional about wanting to relieve the suffering, um, and be more ready to take action. And with along with that comes um, resilience and compassion. So it's I really want to be careful about sound sounding like I think the pandemic is making us better people. But I think there's an opportunity for some of us to do the kind of reflection on the pandemic that might lead to more resilience and compassion. And I hope people take it.
0: Well, I know for me and I hope for people listening that you've given us a lot to think about and some new ways to look at some of this. Uh, Thank you so much for, for sharing your time with us.
1: You are most
0: welcome. Thanks as always for checking us out. Send us your comments or questions if you feel so inclined at mainquestion at main.edu. Our series can be found in a bunch of places Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This is Ryan Laznette. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.